Today we continue our study in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 17 of the Perseverance of the Saints, paragraph 2. All right, let us have a brief word of prayer again before we start. Our Lord and our God, I gather again to learn from you. Oh Father, help us to sit under the authority of your word. Be the true teacher here, O oh God. We ask that the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and our hearts and help us to rightly divide the word of truth here and cause us to be edified for your glory and cause us to be fit for the Master's use. Thank you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name I've prayed. We we'll continue our study from paragraph 2. I read and then I will see what we have. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth all the certainty and infallibility thereof. Just about five or nine lines, but it's like a whole sermon. Uh, we began last week with the perseverance of the saints, and I think Eliezer tried to stress the perseverance part very well last week. And one major reason for this was so that, you know, we don't, two things actually. One, for the believer, so you don't run around and you enjoy yourself. Thinking, no, I'm saved and that's fine now. Anything, anything, anyhow you be, I'll be fine. And then live according to the flesh. And two, for the unbeliever, so he does not rest upon a false assurance and think, and since this person is saved, this is how we are saved. We are all in the same boat. No, no, no. We try to explain the understanding of perseverance clearly and show that this is the human part. This is the God-ordained means by which he saves and keeps or preserves the elect. You will persevere through trials. As Jesus promised his disciples, in this world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer, have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. How it will come, you don't know that. Nobody knows that. In fact, most times, Christians are always not prepared for when trials come. It, it, it catches them unawares. They think they are not prepared anyway, but the Lord knows that they are prepared because they always overcome by his grace. But this study is trying to explain clearly where the power to persevere comes from for the Christian. You see the first line, it says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their, their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election and, and going on and going on. But the first line, depends not upon their own free will. Why did the confession need to stress that? Because like every other teaching in, uh, in the Bible, or by the reading of, of scripture, you know, we always come to the Bible with our own presuppositions, our own ideas. And if we don't drop those ideas, we read those ideas into the text. E.g., free will. We have the highest ultimatum when it comes to free will. We're the one that make the ultimate decision. We're the one to do this, we're the one to do that. And if we read through the scriptures with that presupposition, we will end up in what we popularly call as Arminianism. And we will be so convinced that that's a true position, but it's wrong. So we learn to read the scripture without such presuppositions. And when you finally come to the Bible and read it, what you find out is not really free will, but free grace you actually don't find free will in it. You just find free grace. And then you're confused. 
not only confused, you're, you're, you're stunned. You're stunned because of the height of ignorance that you have. And if you stumble there and you find out that it's just free grace, you now have to calm down with almost every other doctrine in scripture. Because that's the same idea that everything comes from God. In this Christian life, what we are trying to tell you is that the first active agent is God. The first active agent for anything you can achieve, be it your perseverance, is God and this is of grace. And that's why he says, he says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. Many grounds that the church fathers try to place this teaching in. We know that perseverance is truly going through trials. Let's just put it that way. It's going through trials. It's like on your way to Zion, you're going to go through trials. It's not an enjoyment journey. And this passage is stressing the aspect that uh, church fathers uh, in theology, they put it, the preservation of the saints. So it's actually stressing that part, the God part. The first one introduced us to the human part. And you will suffer and you will persevere. And the only way we would know that you're truly a Christian is that you persevere. But it is not your perseverance that ultimately ends you preservation. So if you stop at paragraph one, you would actually think perseverance, 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 and then I earned preservation. And I was preserved because I persevered. No. What the Bible is actually teaching is God preserves you. Therefore, you persevere. It is the preservation of God that makes you persevere. It is the grace of God that makes you persevere. That is the understanding of the entire doctrine. The whole, the whole reason why we can see Christians will persevere. They will not fall away. The finality of such statements is because we rest on God. Not because we have some power somewhere in and of ourselves that is sure for me, I will not, I will not fall. No. I, I put it to you, not, not sure for you. You will fall. It is on this ground, these grounds, that the confession will lay out and will look at that we come to that conclusion that God will keep us, even through trials. We have the grounds. Uh, it's, it's written in the, in the lines, in the paragraph, but I tried to itemize them for us in my notes. Sorry, I could not share the notes. Five grounds, anyway. You can see them in the, in, in the, in the paragraph. One, the immutability of the decree of election. Two, the efficacy of the work of Christ. Three, the continuous indwelling spirit of, of God. Four, the dependability of God's oath and character. Five, the infallibility of the covenant of grace. So you can see that these are the grounds that uh, the church fathers are saying we can draw a conclusion from this teachings in, in the Bible that is fine. A believer won't fall away because of this. We have a very, very keen understanding of this. And we'll look at them closely, one by one, if time permits us. Uh, one, the decree of election. Can someone read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 to 11? Ephesians 1, 5 to 11. Mm, somebody else will read uh, Romans 8, chapter verse 30 alone. through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Thank you. Romans 8.30 And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he, has, he also glorified. Thank you. So the teaching of election, I mean for those who are new, is just that God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, predestined some to be elected in his son, in the efficacious work of his son on the cross, to be saved. When we look at this doctrine as Christians, and we see as we've read in Ephesians, and also in Romans, looking at the order of salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, one thing we, are, we tend to think is how we did not do anything to earn it or to even understand it, the doctrine of election. Why are we elected in Christ? We read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, you see that we are elected to the praise of his glorious grace. All these things we had no idea of before we were saved. All these things the Lord crafted in his mind, speaking of God the Father, in election. If you remember how we studied of justification by faith. We studied it so keenly that justification is a legal declaration. We didn't move quickly into the transformation of the heart by morality or the producing of good works. We stayed a bit to show us that it's clear that before the Holy Spirit actively raises a man from the dead. He's legally justified before God. That what moves God to bring a dead man to life in Christ is because God sees him justified. God justifies the man. And the Holy Spirit actively, in a factual call, transforms the heart and brings him to Calvary. It doesn't leave him in the sin. It's not wicked. It doesn't transform you and you have the guilt and the conviction of sin and the pang and leaves you there and leaves you wondering. No, he brings you to Calvary as we see in Ephesians, in Philippians chapter 1 and when Paul was, Philippians 1 verse 6, when Paul was very confident that I know that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. He won't bring you halfway. He brings you to Calvary. In fact, when we read Romans 9 as, as Reformed people, we keep reading Romans 9, the first thing we get to the conclusion is that it's not by our works that we are saved. Roman, let's read it for a bit. Romans 9. Maybe it was 1 to 16. A fast reader. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The, other, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thank you. So you see there, showing us how it is clearly not your works that saves you. We see the, the doctrine of free grace expanded by the, by the Apostle Paul. But we also see how it is not what you did or did not do that got you elected. It was not that you were not doing something evil, that's why you were chosen. Or that you were doing something evil. It has nothing to do with you at all. It has everything to do with God being sovereign and being wise. You see, it is from that position that we have the idea and the strength to persevere. Every time we wake up, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. I was not good enough by the time I was saved. I'm not good enough now. It is that that keeps us humble. And in a way, it works things it's what works things out for us to run back to God for grace. So as he effectually calls us, it strengthens the faith that is given to us at salvation. Because the whole system is designed to keep you humble. At every point, in fact, the very first idea of salvation is to make you know that you don't deserve this. Ephesians 2 verse 8 is not where it works. It's a gift. You don't deserve this. That election strengthens our belief in God. That now that he has called me and he's elected me, he will keep me. Because I was not doing anything to earn it before. But he will keep me. You see that we are strengthening and we are preaching election now. We are preaching the part of God's strength and God's power in keeping his own. But we also explained how he will keep his own. Through those trials. So that in those trials, you don't go into abject despair, but how will you be kept? And neither do you go to pride that don't worry, I can do this. Because you can't. And it keeps you in the very state of humility that God will do it. And God will strengthen you. And, it, and, and again, there's another teaching there that tells you that the Lord calls you as a sheep. That's an idea in the New Testament. He calls you into the sheep of his pasture. And who's the good shepherd? Christ. Who no one can rob of his sheep. So if he calls you into the sheep of his pasture, the Lord Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. So he's pasturing you to glory. And that is why we see in the second part the efficacy of the work of Christ. The second ground that the, the, the church father has put, the efficacy of the work of Christ, I mean, big grammar, but efficacy means 
that something would actually perform its intended effect. Its intended effect. And that's exactly what the cross of Christ is. It's not guesswork. It will, and it did perform its intended effect. Christ did perform exactly what he came here to do. He came here to deliver us from sin. And he's doing it through his work. First, he delivers us from the penalty of sin by dying for us. Ezekiel 18. The Lord says, the soul that sins will die. But he did not sin except that he's dying for your sin. So he has taken the penalty of sin for you. Also, he has taken the wrath on the cross, the wrath of God. You see, for the believer and the beloved, when you, when you see the, the, the preaching and the, the language of the New Testament, it tells you, dearly beloved, beloved of the Lord, those in the beloved, because you are loved by God. The kind of love that the Lord has for his son is what he has for you. Why? Because there's no wrath again for you. You're covered. And you are covered because Christ took it. He took the wrath. So in your preservation and in your perseverance, it is because of God's love for you that he is keeping you. It's because of Christ's love for you that he is keeping you as a sheep of his pasture. He has taken the wrath. You see, the idea is, if you truly fall away, what will happen? You fall under what? God's wrath. God's wrath. If you truly fall away from grace, there's only two, there's only two destinations in eternity now. Heaven or hell, right? And if you're in hell, you're under that same wrath. So is God going to cheat his son by letting him take the wrath and still give you the wrath? This is the ground to which we have a strong conviction that Christ's efficacious work on that cross is performing his intended effect. Thirdly, another work of Christ is his ascension. His place of his high priestly prayer. I mean, he is a priest now in heaven for us. Daily interceding for us. Supplying grace that we need to overcome daily because he's interceding for us. He's working on our behalf. And he does not tire. He's the good shepherd. He's working on our behalf. He's interceding for us so that we can get grace to overcome. And he's not... I do not have the grasp of language to explain it. But he is at the right hand of God. Right now. Interceding for you. And for every saint, he has interceded for every saint that has walked through this earth. And he has kept them. Why would your own case be any different? I mean, what really is in you that is stronger than Christ? That is stronger than Christ's love? Again, the last one he says is going to present us faultless. Why is he working so that he can present us faultless? before Christ, before God, rather, in himself, is going to present us faultless. He's going to present us faultless before his father. And if, if he's doing all this, we can truly say like, <laughs> like Paul in Romans chapter 8, 
Who truly shall separate us from the love of God? What truly shall separate us from the love of God? Do you remember if we read that text? If we if we read Romans eight thirty five, someone please open to Romans eight thirty five. The love of Christ. Okay, I think I'm there. So I read Romans eight thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written. For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Though in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And read it on your own. But look at the, the grammar and the language that Paul is using. Because he understands that the means to which God is going to keep the believer is perseverance. You don't see him mentioning things like... Uh, what to separate us from the love of God? Comfort. You know, money. He knows the things that are coming. There's no need of mentioning the things that may not come. But these ones, they assured us, they will come. These are the things that are coming our way. And it's now still encouraging that what will separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ nothing and he's even saying the things in the ultimate that should I mean if you if one of the fastest way to know false professors now they put a knife to our neck we can't we will know now quickly well he's telling us even sword peril tribulation it can't it can't separate us and if we are together with him in the end, he will present us faultless because we'll be in him. And we'll see him last years. The third ground is the indwelling spirit, the spirit of God. The indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit. But the New Testament actually uh talks about the gift of God being without repentance. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God does not change his mind. And it's not good for us to just be building theology like that because it's not like a hound sign in theology. But we can say this clearly that if the gift truly is talking about our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 if the gift are not without repentance the active agent in our salvation has got the Holy Spirit. Who wakes us up? Who effectually calls the elect? It's got the Holy Spirit. You see, the church fathers are saying that God the Holy Spirit being part of the Trinity, if he calls the elect, if he wakes them up, if he changes their heart and brings them to, to the cross and he is indwelling he doesn't go away what other ground do we need to persevere if we have the Holy Spirit and you know when you're saved the life you live is now by the Spirit you have you live a life by the Spirit. Your life now is you pray by the Spirit, you've been sanctified by the Spirit, you present your bodies living sacrifices, living sacrifice to God by the Spirit. Your good works is by the Spirit. It sounds legalistic, but I mean, this is how it is. Your life truly as the Christian is by the Spirit. You are in the Spirit always. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, If you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall what? The Spirit maketh intercession for us without groanings that can be uttered. It's talking about prayer. Everything you do as a Christian is by the Spirit. If the New Testament language is explaining to us that the Spirit does not leave, 
So for us to truly fall away from God is that his spirit lives. Because if we are alive by the spirit, spirit is eternal. Spirit is co-equal with God. He's God. is part of the Trinity. And you see the first three grounds on which the, the, the church fathers have put. It's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed? It's the doctrine of the Trinity that they are setting forth first. As God the Father elects upon the work of God the Son, and the application of God the Spirit. And if the three of them agree, who in this world or in heaven can stop their plan? This is the ground on which they, they give you the comfort of preservation. Remember again, it's not from uh, you're persevering in trials. If you start thinking back of the people in, in the church history or even in the Old or the New Testament. People who have persevered, they've truly gone through serious suffering. And if you don't have such strong teaching of the Bible and strong, strong convictions that this is, this is who is keeping me, this is where I get power from. If you place faith in something else, e.g. yourself, or your works, or something else at all, a church, or just something funny, other than the teachings of scripture, you fall. Even in your daily life, you fall. If you've not placed faith in Christ, you fall, you fall. If you've not placed faith in the teachings of scripture and the understanding of God, you fall. One of the fastest ways to backsliding is trusting in the times you've overcame temptation. I mean, you won't, you're not backslide immediately, but if the Lord is merciful to you, you backslide immediately, quickly, so that you can run to God. And He shows you your sin. But the minute you have some form of a good run, I put it like that, a good run, you know, you've overcome your besetting sin for one week, and then you notice you've not been you've been so humble for maybe two weeks and another one month your wife has annoyed you but are you free and this is really Christ-like love you begin to look at yourself like I'm really good at this Christianity thing you know? and after one month and after two months you've already switched in your mind to a works-based salvation and preservation. And you don't even know it. Most of the time, we don't know it till we fall. That is why we, sometimes we are shocked that we are sinners. When we fall in our work with God, when we fall to sin, it shocks us. <sighs> I'm still this sinner. Is this me? It's because you've actually stopped trusting in God. You start looking at yourself and your seemingly victories in the spirit. <laughs> but no. If you rest upon these grounds and you look to them carefully, you'll be safe. For, for faithfully see that's called you. The fourth one that the, the, commentary, uh, the our father has put is the oath of God. The oath we read here, it says, uh, from line four, the efficacy of the marriage and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding spirit, the oath of God. Let's read Hebrews chapter six. So, want to read Hebrews chapter 6 let's see from verse 1 to 8 first and then somebody else will read from verse 9 to 20 Hebrews 6 verse 1 to 8 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound Hebrews 6 Hebrews 6 from verse 1 
Let, to, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Hebrews 6 from verse 1 to 8. And go on to maturity. Laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the body and eternal the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse 3. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. For land that, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Verse 8. It is left and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Thank you. The confession adds, puts this uh, uh, text, Hebrews chapter 6, because one of the largest and the biggest arguments against the preservation of the saints, uh, or the perseverance of the saints, is Hebrews 6. There are many others. And you can go to many others, Old Testament, New Testament, and read into it and say, oh, it's possible for a believer to fall away. But from the New Testament, like I said, if you read the scripture with your presupposition, if you read Hebrews 6, 1 to 8, you, you will have the strong belief that a Christian will fall away. And they put it here so that we can reason through it and read the pattern of the, writing, of the writer of Hebrews. What is the prevalent teaching in our world today? You can fall away and come back, Abi. If you if you backslide, you're falling out of grace, and then you rededicate your life, Abi, or you come back. In Catholic Church, it is you're injured by you know venial sins, and you need grace to come back. Oh, you are really, really injured by now a mortal sin, and then you need real, you know, much more grace again to come back. But if you see the the the, the style of the writer of Hebrew, and one of the, another big problem throughout church history is nobody really knows the writer of Hebrews, and nobody knows to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing. So everybody has said. That's your own. It's you that is saying your own. But if you look, look at the style, we don't need to know the style of the writer. One thing is clear here. If you read from verse 6, one thing is clear here. In Hebrews 6, from verse 6, one thing is clear. It says, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they crucified since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. I think we should even start from verse 4. It says, For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared and have shared of this of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and so on and so on. So we see here that the, the writer is actually telling you that 
first thing you should put out of your mind is that idea of I'm saved, now I'm lost, now I'm saved again. If you have truly tasted of it and you fall away, there's no coming back for you. Forget it. Because the idea of the ordination of salvation is that you are saved through one means. If you discard that means, it will not be given to you again. Because God will not invent another new means to save you. You are not that special. It is only one means. If you discard the blood of Jesus and you do not count it as something worthy, why else would they give it to you again? If you fall away, forget it. You are gone. It's done. It is impossible to renew you to repentance again. There's no point. So, the writer actually is going through that logic. He's telling you, if you read through this, if you do this, if you tasted of this, if you tasted of this, if you've done this, it's impossible to bring you. But what was from verse 9? Can somebody read from verse 9 to 20 for us? you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you. So you see, after reading from verse 1 to 8, going through the writer's logic, he says you can't come back. And the writer is also still saying from verse 9, but for you, but for you, we are assured of better promises, better things. So that the idea that I was painting for us is not what I'm assured of for you. The writer is telling you that I'm assured of better things for you. And he still goes further down to say because God could swear by nothing greater, by no one greater, he swore by himself through the oath that he will keep you. And he will not forget your labor of love. He will keep you. This is, this is comforting. In fact, the writer still puts it, we are writing this so that you can have a strong encouragement. A strong encouragement. And it's the same. It's written to, I mean, the Bible is written to all, to all Christians of all ages. So, it's the same to us. A strong encouragement on God again. We are looking at the oath of God again. God swearing and God the Son entering as the priest again. We are seeing the workings of the Trinity in the oath again. 
keeping us, depending on their oath. You see, they do not need to swear. They didn't need to swear. I mean, it is the same Jesus that said, let your ye be ye and let your nay be ye. Isn't It's the same. So, they didn't need it. But for you, of frail minds, to understand that they will do this thing, it's, it is highly not dependent on you. It is on their character. They will keep it. They will keep that oath. And they, they can assure you, as, they assure, as, as God the Father assured Abraham, and he could swear by no one great, I swore by himself, I will do this thing. Nothing will stop it. No one will stop my plan. They will do it. And the covenant, lastly, the last ground, the infallibility of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is something we say happened immediately after the fall in Genesis 3. God sweeping in to save every man after sin by grace. Every man that has ever been saved in this world will be saved by grace through Christ. And throughout the Bible, as we studied in the covenant, in chapter 7 of the covenant, we see how the covenant of grace has been revealed partially and keep being revealed. But we see its fullness and its finality, I think, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, if you're there, read for us. Somebody else to wait in Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 7 to 13. But Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah chapter 31 from verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they break, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews chapter, thank you. Hebrews chapter 8, from verse 7 to 13. You're there. Please wait for the microphone. Thank you. 7 to 13. Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant has had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my command, covenant and so i showed no concern for them declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thank you. You see the teaching here in the, full, in the fullness of the new covenant. That is the one you're under. You're under the new covenant. And you are 
kept by the Spirit of God. For he's writing his words, he's writing his will on your heart. See the language. No more with the... It's not like the Mosaic Covenant. No more with the teach one another. My brother teaching, know the Lord. But they shall all know me. Showing the priesthood of all believers. I will have my spirit in every one of them. And I will teach them my ways. They will all know me. Look at these grounds. Look at the five of them. This is not full assurance that God will keep you. Look at them. From election to Christ's suffering and his work to the indwelling of the Spirit to the oath of God for your encouragement and the new covenant with you. The old covenant vanished away because of the work of God, because of the work of Christ. If it's in the old King, old King James, he puts it this way, I will shake and that which cannot be shaken will remain. And that which cannot be shaken is truly the rock of ages and that's Christ, your mediator, the one in which you are in union with. We are teaching these things and the Bible is teaching these things for you to have a stronger belief and reality of the spiritual than the physical. Many of these things we don't see. We don't see the writing of, of the new covenant except we see it in a book, in scripture. Many of us now never saw it. I mean, it's not never. Not many of us. All of us now did not see Jesus die on that cross. All of us. We did not see him. But he's still telling us that we should have a hope in God. That the Godhead, they are not confused. They are very, very well in perfect unity and unism. According to this plan, no one is running before the other. No one is making a mistake. This definite plan and purpose of God is happening according to his sovereign will. And guess what? You are in it. You're in it. So you will persevere. Because the Lord will preserve you. Two applications before we round up. One. The doctrine of perseverance should actually humble you. There's no place of pride. It should humble you. See, I've been in circles where Perseverance, or supposed perseverance, has become a thing of pride. I know I suffered, but it's because of my suffering that I'm now elevated. The Lord has elevated me. I have money now. I know where I used to live. You know, you hear some funny testimonies growing up, and sometimes, I mean, when you're not saved, it's what you aspire to be. You know, it's, it's actually what you aspire to be. You thought that in the now, your suffering must pay off. But, but no. Through your perseverance, as you suffer for righteousness' sake, it's meant to humble you. Because it points you to who keeps you. And it's pointing you to the first one who suffered. Who suffered first? Chorus answer. Who suffered first? Was it you? It's pointing you to the first one who suffered. And this, the, 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 the teaching of the New Testament and for Scripture is showing that it was out of humility and obedience that he suffered. He was not suffering in pride. He was not saying, I know that, you know, when I die, when I die the glory will be, will, be, will be for me. You know, that's not how it was. If you read the Garden of Gethsemane and how it was praying, it was real. As real as it was in that garden, a fraction of it, remember when he promised James and John that you, you will indeed drink of that cup, a fraction of it is waiting for you as believers. 
a fraction. You will taste of that suffering. But you will overcome just as he did. And two, encouragement. Encouragement. It's an encouragement to us because sometimes when we walk out that door, everything we learn uh, is 50%. It means like 50%. It's like being in university. As the teacher is doing the example, he's entering. Once you reach class, classwork, you know that <laughs> it's actually 70% you got, you understood. I remember this thing clearly when I was <laughs> in primary three and then they taught multiplication by two digits. I got four over five. Why did I feel one? It's because I don't really know it. <laughs> and I guessed the last one and I feel it. But you see, when you live here, you forget. Maybe 30%. And before you know it, you've forgotten 50%. And day by day, you've mingled in the world. You've actually forgotten. And the trials and troubles of this world now become more real than scripture. Be encouraged. This is more real than your troubles. God is more real than your troubles. As we sang, his oath, his covenant, his blood, they support you in the well-made flood. When all around my soul gives way, hidden is my hope and stay. He is the anchor, steadfast and sure. The billows roam, fasting to the rock. He's the anchor of your soul. Fasting to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And what can separate us from the love of God? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or sword or peril? Who? No one. No one can separate us. We stand in him blameless because he's our savior and he's our champion and he will keep us. Jude 23-24 tells, Now to him that is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before God, he will keep you do not fear, he will keep you. And your power will come from him. For in every day that you remind yourself of the power of the gospel, that is where your power to persevere comes from. That he is assuring you that look at my son, I have no wrath for you, but love, and I will keep you to the very end. Amen. Questions or contributions? All right. A question or a contribution? Yes, a contribution. Okay. Uh, so I, I believe it's um, worth noting that at the base of this preservation, preservation and perseverance is the fact that God is unchanging. God is immutable because we've we've seen people start things and yeah, they end up not finishing it. We ourselves we do that a lot. We we set a goal, we set a target. Even we may even be saving for that target. And at the end of the day, we have what we need to get it, and we change our minds. People change their minds. We've seen people start building, you know, perhaps a big building, and then they stop halfway. We've seen those things happen. Right, someone going through school and then before graduating he, he changes his mind and then drops out. We've seen those things happen. But at the base of this um, preservation and perseverance is the fact that God doesn't change. And it's based on this immutability that his, um, his attributes, his love, his decrease flow. I think the, um, the confession does point us to this direction when it says that the, the perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own will, that's their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God, the Father. And so it's indeed due to the fact that God doesn't change that we can, because these things won't make sense if God does change, right? Because we can, if it's possible, do the best work, live the best life. And then we get there and God will say, due to unforeseen circumstance, he, he has changed his mind, and so there's no point trying to uh, hold on to this if God does change, right? So we can be assured 
that he who has started a good work and also bring it to completion because there's no shadow of turning in God. Right, so, yeah. Thank you very much for that contribution. Thank you very much. Yes. Mine is to add by way of recommending further studies. Some of those pieces that uh, Prodigy is uh, mentioning, um, a lot of volumes and inks are going to works. For instance, the first negation in paragraph two is free will. And for you to get a grasp of the doctrines of grace, you must understand the free will. What is, what free will is, and what free will isn't. And the limitation or the inability of free will in the business of redemption. You must clear your mind about this. I have a free will, but to, to what extent has that been damaged by sin? And what can a free will do? Secondly, he mentioned uh, the, on the positive side, uh, he, uh, he mentioned uh, that it depends on the, the decree of election. This also is another realm many of you will need to read. You can Google or you can get ebook or you can get some hardcover book. The decree of election, the unchangeable decree of election that flows out of the law of an unchangeable God. You need to read around uh, that area too. And um, union with Christ is another key area you may want to study. Many Christians are not really familiar with this uh, arena, union with Christ. Another area I mentioned there, I mean, there are more than 10 points there, like the merits of Christ. The merit of Christ and his application of that merit of Christ, you need to read around it. And the intercession of Christ, the, the, interse the efficacious intercessory priestly uh, prayer of Christ for believers are there for you to study. The nature of the covenant of grace are there for you to study. You can underline them and then begin to look for books or materials to read around it to enrich, uh, enrich your own soul. If you put your logic into work, you will understand that if all of these ingredients were cooked together and were being applied, another one is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the seed of God in you. If all of these things, the, the decree of election, the love of God, the merit of Christ, the intercession of Christ, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and on and on, are all woven together in your preservation, logically speaking, how, how can you fall from grace if these things are present in you? See, being a believer is so much more than, than I'm a Christian. It means these things are present, are actively present in you. That's why you are a believer. And if they are not there, there is a problem. I know some of you want to ask questions around. Uh, I was noting issues like, oh, you said we can't follow you from grace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, actually mentioned the fact that some people fall away from grace. That could be a question. Uh, something, the Lord left him. That could be a question in your mind. Uh, hold that till next week. Well, we'll begin to look at uh, what happened to Christians when they, are, they, they fall into grievous sin. What now happened to this paragraph two? And again, if you so are not going with that, but if today is your first time of hearing this, you are not here last week to understand the, the human angle to this, the human responsibility angle to this that has been dealt with uh, uh, sufficiently so you can get back to the team and then uh, help yourself. That's what actually I want to uh, contribute. Just a recommendation. Thank you, Pastor. Any other contribution or questions? All right. Oh, sorry for our time today. Sorry. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your study. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. 
Father, take these few words that we've spoken and plant it deep in our hearts. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of your love. We know that our, our frail minds cannot comprehend who you are, but strengthen us, comfort us. Many of us who are going through trials, through difficulties, and we wonder if you are present through your scripture, remind us that you are, you are ever present and you are unchanging in your love. Thank you, Lord, for the answer and for the hearing of our prayers. In Jesus' name I've prayed.